Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. Thanks for being here with us. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi again, Alan. Uh, Good morning, Fred. Hope you had a great vacation. Terrific. We sure did, but we, we kept on doing the podcast. In this edition, mobility, that's what it's all about. How to make it better, safer, more accessible. And joining us today, we're really happy to have Alex Roy, writer, editor at The Driver, world-famous endurance driver, founder of the Human Driving Association, and the author of a column in 2025 AD titled, Forget Universal Basic Income, We Need Basic Universal Mobility. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks so much, gentlemen. Yeah, well, it's great having you, Alex. And uh, uh want to discuss with you this concept of mobility. I mean, this is fundamentally uh, why I'm in this business is uh, trying to provide mobility and have uh, improved mobility for everyone. And I loved your article. So um, let's discuss it. Yeah. Give us the overview, first of all, of what you're trying to convey with the idea of universal basic mobility. All right. So, you know, I'm a big fan of driving, but most driving sucks. We all know why. Traffic sucks. Uh, Alan, you've done amazing work just talking about how to improve that. Um, but, it, uh, you know, this, this human driving association idea that I started, started almost as a joke because I didn't think anyone would take it seriously. And there were a lot of people who really were afraid that new mobility solutions were going to take away their right to drive or even their ability to own a car. So I was having dinner with a friend of mine who's very politically conservative and we were talking about universal basic income and which he's been opposed to for for his entire life. And then he said, oh, but if we don't do it, if we don't do UBI, the, the unemployed will literally be at the gates, at the gates of his Connecticut house. So then I thought, I, so I was thinking to myself, how do we, how do we depoliticize um, new mo- you know, mobility and autonomy? How do we just take politics out of it and, and create some kind of framework for talking about it that would allow us to implement solutions without just historical biases? So I began studying universal basic income, and which has a clear you know, divide in, in, in support in this country. I thought, well, let's replace income with mobility and think about how that could, that could really work. And so I started just inverting terms. Instead of structural unemployment, I was like, well, let's look at structural immobility. There, there are transit deserts throughout you know, cities in the United States. Let's, uh, let's look at you know, equilibrium of you – know, people talk about uh, – uh, income equality. Let's look about at mobility equality, and let's start creating a, a language and a framework around that, so we could talk about it in a real way. So, what is universal basic mobility? It is the idea that a framework of public-private partnerships and policies on a local and federal level can and should provide a mobility floor, guaranteed minimum mobility for all, as an investment in people and keeping people moving and employed and happy as opposed to a handout, which leaves people static. And immobile people are unhappy people. Well, uh, I'm really uh, glad you said that, Alex. You, you can't believe how happy I am you said that, because you know, in a sense, that that's what I'm working, uh, trying to make happen here. Um, you know, looking at, at the, the, the great disparity in mobility, and then people talk about transit, and then, but the realization is that transit serves four percent of the trips nation uh, on a nationwide basis. I mean, they're, they're, it's essentially irrelevant. 
And, and if, you don't, if you don't have a car, if you can't afford a car, uh, then, then your life, is, or you can't, you for some reason can't drive, your life is just, I mean, it's, it's just sucks. And, and, and it's even worse, uh, here in New Jersey, uh, you know, we have this Mount Laurel, uh, a low income housing requirement. And, and guess what we do with low income housing? We put it out in, in absolute transit deserts. And so here we put the people out there. We say, here, you have low income housing, but very expensive mobility. As opposed to us saying, here, we're going to give you, we're going to give you affordable, uh, living, but the affordable living has two pieces to it. One is that it has mobility and affordable mobility and good mobility. And the other is you have affordable housing. And without the affordable mobility uh, and good mobility going in that, uh, your quality of life is really bad. And so this requires, a, as, you, as you've begun to, to put it out there, really a, a, a necessary requirement. And it's not just providing the 606 bus that shows up once every three weeks and who knows what, and certainly doesn't run 24-7. And of course, this is what I see as the opportunity with uh, driverless autonomous taxis in fleets focused on providing this basic uh, uh, on-demand, high-quality mobility to the mobility disadvantage first. Not to us, not to, 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 to the three of us, but to the people that, that really uh, could benefit uh, so much and get so much value out of it and improve their life. That's where we should start. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, it's funny when I when I Googled, you know, universal basic mobility and basic universal mobility, inverting the words, I only came up with four hits on the entire, you know, internet. There's a, a woman named Ingrid Leighton who was uh, a, a minister in transportation, I think, in Belgium and is now, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what she's doing now. And she implemented a policy whereby uh, in rural areas, if you if your bus didn't show up or wasn't running, it was after hours, you could take a taxi and you could bill it to the town and they'd reimburse you. Uh, and then there's this guy, uh, Tim McGuckin, who works uh, as a consultant in tolling, who had written a piece. Uh, but his vision of UBM, if I understand it correctly, was really much closer to UBI or like a it would only it would be an allowance only for the uh, the working poor, uh, but my my view of UBM is that it needs to be really universal, and I'll, let me explain why. I think there's, and I'm just making this up as I go along, and I'm surprised how much traction it's gotten. But I, I think that for every given municipality, there's a like mobility equilibrium. There's a different combination or a different set of modes each in, at a different level will create an overall mobility equilibrium. So solutions, a, a total platform solution, uh, is going to be different in each place. And each person has like a modal equilibrium, like at, at different points in their life, they use different set of modes. And so when people talk about the, the criticality of big data and data is the new oil, it, well, it, it's information is the new oil. Data is just data. It, you know, you, you see where I'm going with this. So we need to have a really much better understanding uh, and translate all this data into information about users and about localities such that we can create this this ecosystem in a meaningful way. 
And I think we need to reset like the, 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 the phrase is a language about how we talk about this. So every time, Alan, and I listen to your podcast and I, I listen, I read all your stuff. So every time you're trying to explain to a policymaker, um, why what you're saying matters, you don't have to re-explain what a safe car is, a driverless car is, and a, and a safe driving car versus a self-driving car. The language is a, the language itself is a barrier to understanding how to implement the solutions. I, I agree, and, and, and a little bit more in terms of what I'm trying to do uh, around here is that, you know, if you, if you take what Waymo's done in Arizona, it's, it's great, but, but the people that they're providing the mobility to are probably people <laughs> that already have mobility. But it right. was focused on the people who are in, let's call them the transit deserts. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we have a total transit desert here in, in, in New Jersey. You know, New Jersey transit's great, but again, it serves, even in Jersey, it only serves 4% of the trips. The rail is great <laughs> if you're going to New York. If, if you live in Trenton and, and you want, you want a job, at, at the Amazon uh, distribution facility that would really love to have you as a worker, it's essentially impossible to get there unless you have a car. And, and Amazon, I, hopefully they're paying them somewhat reasonably, but my goodness, should, should those people be out there forced to buy a car to get out there as opposed to putting food on, on, on their table for their family? It's, it's, it's unconscionable. And, and so yeah, it's insanity. you could take a Waymo type service that they're starting out there. And that's what I want them to come here in Jersey to do. And, and my students and I have identified what we call the, the lowest decile of, of mobility disadvantaged households, not only in central Jersey, but across the United States and say, come in here and provide this great mobility, Verizon Wireless, give these people cell phones so that they in fact can, can, can contact these things and provide them the kind of mobility you're providing there, there in, in, in Arizona uh, to this mobility disadvantage so that these folks can go out and actually go to a job or go to a doctor or, or, or do the, or maybe go to some enjoyment uh, and, 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 and uh, be able to do that uh, like the rest of us do. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, people, I often go to conferences and hear people talk about how, you know, externalities of driving aren't priced into to car ownership. That's all true. But there's, there are these social externalities to forcing people into single mode lives, which, uh, make it, you know, really infringe on their quality of life and their kids, you know, uh, that is not quantified, you know, in a real way, in a societal, societal way. And, you know, other countries have done things like this. You know, Estonia, um, has done, you know, has free public transit nationally. And of course, as you cited about, uh, was it Verizon? Um, this notion of lifeline phones, uh, the Obama phone. Uh, but there's such a thing as, you know, kind of, uh, lifeline mobility. You know, if you if you're locked into one choice, you are in a way being you're being discriminated against. Um, but I, I can't stress enough the, the criticality of looking at this not as a, a form of welfare, but as an investment. You know, the New York Times did a story, uh, I think it was a few months ago, about how the number one method of pulling people out of poverty is to provide transportation choice, and um, that's really really important. Because an economically healthy society 
requires that people have choice and that they have a method of getting to work that's efficient. And, and it's not, it's absolutely not welfare. You know, it's a value to the Amazons of this world, the businesses of the world, the, 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 the developers who, who create the housing of this world. I always use, I love the elevator analogy. The elevator analogy to me in this thing is, is that if you're building a tall building and you, you, you basically are building the 14th floor of this thing, how much rent could you charge on that if you didn't provide mobility to that 14th floor? Uh, zero. Okay. <laughs> so, and so therefore built into the rent is the provision of mo accessibility so that the folks who can really use and enjoy and get benefit from it can get there. Now, somehow horizontally, we have forgotten about that. And we've been told, go out and you cut your own. You, you, you basically roll your own on that one and you go out and you buy the car and all that. And, and that's been good and, and great. And it's created an economy, but it's left an enormous number of people behind. And, and now we might have with this technology, at least I see this is the technology. It's not the, the Mercedes driverless car where you have two and whatever sitting there ship, sipping champagne while they're going down I-95. They do that now with their chauffeurs. Okay. Mm. The hell with them. What about using this technology, you know, to provide the fundamental basic mobility as you put it out there, basic universal mobility to people so that they can get to a job so that they can have decent health and get to a doctor's appointment. And so maybe they can even get to the great adventure and, 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 you know, and, and, and enjoy life too. Uh, anyway, I, <laughs> I, yeah, I totally agree. I'm so glad you put this thing out there. I mean, I, I hope people listen to our, our, our podcast, whatever. I can't wait for the congressional hearings on this. <laughs> I have one more point. Uh, you mentioned the word fundamental. This is interesting. Is that, you know, the framers, of the constitution um, discussed um, actually putting a freedom of movement clause in there. Uh, and then chose not to because they thought that freedom of movement was so obvious, you know, and, and inherent um, that it's just implied through, you know, the Commerce Clause, the Interstate Commerce Clause. Uh, but in, but in 1948, the you know the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights actually put in put in writing that freedom of movement is a fundamental human right. And this, and when you talk about um, the two tiers of mobility that come, you know, with autonomy, these geofence solutions like Waymo and others. Uh, if you live outside the fence, um, the friction of moving in and outside of the fence uh, is a cost that we've yet even to, to define. And so the, we're going to see this two-tiered kind of mo mobility classes. How we have to make sure that we don't have that yeah. because freedom movement is, in theory, global, but mobility choices are very local. Absolutely, but I, I think I'll argue that the fence is up there because we're not good enough technologically. Uh, to move the fence. I think the fence is, is, is uh, you know, uh, our, our algorithms have to get better. Our, our, our hardware has to get better. We have to make sure that we're safe. Okay. And so the, the fence is, is, is not, is not really a, 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 a societal or, or racial or anything like that fence. 
it, it's, it's a technological fence. And as soon as we get good enough, then we can expand that fence outward. And, and in the meantime, you know, instead of doing what New York did in, in, in limiting Lyft and Uber drivers, you know, get them to operate more on a shared ride basis so that it, it, it makes it even more affordable and provide mobility out there, to, you know, in Brooklyn, the people who want to go from Brooklyn to Queens. It's essentially impossible to go to, to go circum circumferentially in, in, in New York. Sure, you can get get to Wall Street, you can get to Midtown, but you know, you, but it, heaven forbid, you have to go from Brooklyn to the Bronx. Oh, forget it, <laughs> Alex. Tell tell us what your thoughts are about where this concept, the the idea, goes from here. You've you've done a great job putting it on paper. Uh, I was half joking when I said I can't wait for the congressional hearings, but obviously you have to move to a, to a next step to, to get people, politicians behind this. Well, you know, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I just threw this out there um, in frustration because I couldn't articulate the idea without the words. Uh, I, you know, I, um, I met a guy named Matt Kaywood, who's the CEO of a company called Transit Screen which is, you know, converts, you know, big data into uh, information. They do these boards throughout New York City and other cities that show, um, you know, uh, ETA minutes to transit uh, mode arrival. Um, they work with cities around the world. And so Kaywood and I just authored a sequel to my first paper um, called How to Bring UBM to the Masses, which talks in more detail about different approaches around the world, starting with Estonia's um, and a little bit about Lifeline phones. Uh, I think what's what this is going to look like is uh, a TNC or multiple TNCs are going to realize that they need to be really positive and friendly with cities if they want to deploy their MOS solutions. So if a, if a, your your MOS platform uh, ha, is going to has say twenty modes, but only one choice of each mode then the end user is limited by whether or not that mode's fence is global to or is ubiquitous in, in the area of operation. I mean, think about when Orbitz and Expedia first launched the flight matrices back, I think, about 17 or 18 years ago. Before 2001, if you wanted to buy a flight and you went onto a website, you got a, you got a linear list. Um, and then Orbitz came out with this matrix, which had all these flight options, different airlines and one axis, the other axis that had a different, you know, one stop, two stop. And, but Orbitz and Expedia never owned an airline. So you, they were ag fairly agnostic in terms of what mo uh, airlines they would show. But right now, Uber and Lyft, they do own some of the modes that they intend to display on their MOS platform. And that introduces some distortions, which are not optimal for the end user. So I think these TNCs, I think whoever owns the platform needs to think really hard about whether they want to parachute in and drop in, say, scooters without talking to the city first. Because the open sharing of information with cities is what's going to help optimize the distribution of modes that are currently unavailable to transit deserts where they need to be available. And that's the next step. It are, are more less hostile uh, arrivals in markets and maybe even a consortium of data sharing. And right now, almost every meaningful solution is coming from the private sector. Need, they need to be more like the FAA and NTSB in terms of data sharing, both for safety and for distribution of choice.
Alex, Sorry. for everyone wondering what the Human Driving Association is all about, <laughs> you start out your column yes. by saying it isn't anti-autonomy. Uh, no, I mean, the Human Driving Association, we put out a manifesto seven or eight months ago uh, with this really, you know, cranky uh, op-ed at the drive um, called This is the Human Driving Manifesto. And it, it came from my, my, well, both my love of driving, but my fear of two things. Um, I, you know, Robin Chase, whom I generally like, came out with this manifesto for um, 10 points for better cities. And one of the points was no private ownership of, of vehicles. Uh, okay. Well, I, I think that it, that's, that's a non-starter in this country, even if it makes sense. And on the other end, I meet people who, who think that I represent this, you know, basically that, uh, this arch right wing freedom loving, uh, you know, I guess, uh, approach to driving, which is not true. I believe that the driving should be safer. So I decided to start the HDA, uh, really as a safety organization. What are the technologies, um, Coming, from, what are the what are the automation t uh, technologies that absolutely we need to have that make sense, but that serve that still serve human choice in 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 car ownership and in and in um, driving, I guess. So I would love a car that I could drive, um, yeah, I could that I can own, that I could drive almost wherever I want, but won't let me crash. And that's really Alan's idea. That's a safe driving car. Uh, and so it's a bit kind of a, the, it's an extrapolation of ADAS systems, but with a holistic approach. So if you combine, de, you know, mapping and data, real-time data for weather and traffic with super ADAS, you have a safe driving car. I'd love that. Um, I also love the idea of, of you know, autonomous, geotonomous vehicles in city centers. I don't want to drive in New York City. Get, please deploy vehicles that will drive me safely. And I want an option to have be, to be driven on the highway. But I also want to own my car. Get behind the wheel and say, um, hey, because, uh, you know what? I'm tired tonight. Car, you take me. Exactly. So the HDA is a safety organization trying to preserve freedom and choice in car ownership. Um, but it also, we're very opposed. You know, I, I believe in like quintupling, um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the difficulty of getting a driver's license and the penalties for DUI. In fact, I hope the technology resolves both those issues before they have to be regulated uh, because technology can be, is as good as we make it and let's make it good. Let's deploy it in ways that serve human nature. And so people don't feel like their, their freedoms will be taken away until they actually are taken away. Uh, but you know, it starts with safety. I've done a lot of things in cars. Maybe I shouldn't have. Um, I, I'd like it to be possible to keep owning a car without um, people's lives being endangered. <laughs> Not by me but by people may be inspired. I agree 100%. I mean, I mean this whole notion of uh, you aren't going to own these things. People still own the horses. People still ride horses. Yeah, yeah. Horses are still used in Pennsylvania and other places for certain people who want to use that as mobility. Absolutely. Uh, if you can afford it and you can own it, of course you should be able to own it. But if we can make it so that it provides mobility as a service, like an elevator, you know, I don't own an elevator. I don't want to own an elevator, you know. Right. And, and if this stuff is so good and at times it, it, it beats the car that I own and I take it, great. Compete in the marketplace for, 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 for my, uh, for, for my uh, purchase of your services. But put it out there so that, so that it's available, all this stuff of, 
uh, you know, you're not going to own this, or it's all going to be this, or all that is, I, I don't know, it's just noise, we should just you know, disregard it. I mean, I, I always come back to the, you know, the floods and hurricanes that have happened recently. You can't tell people that they can't own a car when if that car is the difference between life and death and a privately owned fleet is not going to show up because the people who drive those cars have already left to protect their families. And an autonomous vehicle has not been had done sufficient, you know, learning to drive through a flood zone or risk itself yeah. or the or the private fleet operator has decided that the risk factor is too high. The insurance company is not going to replace the fleet. So they're leaving and their people stranded in their homes in this country. I mean, it shouldn't happen in any country, but the car is the most democratizing thing since the printing press. And, but along came with it were a lot of externalities and costs that were never factored in. Let's factor them in. Let's preserve, let's preserve choice and let's do some social justice too. Absolutely. It's just that the car for some people is, is uh, economically a, a struggle and, and yeah. realize that it'd be nice if, it, if we made it so that it isn't economically a struggle. And but if there are better ways for us to get around and so on and, 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 and whatever, we'll take it. Let's just put those things out there to compete as opposed to having some regulation or some law saying you shan't and you can't and all that crap. Yeah. So for, I support you completely. Alex, Alan. you also have a consulting business uh, called Geotegic. That all about. <laughs> so in in 2008, uh, after I went cross country, set one of the, the driving records, uh, I got hired by Piaggio to build a website um, using maps and to do storytelling in maps for uh, their new uh, three wheeled motorcycle. And so I launched a company called Geotegic, and then I protect, then I forgot about all of it for about I don't know seven eight years. Uh, but in recent recent uh, months, I've been, I've done so many speaking engagements and done, been hired uh, so many times to help mobility startups kind of frame their marketing and branding and occasionally help them a little bit with functionality. I decided to basically um, uh, make it official and relaunch Geotegic. So, uh, and it's, you know, a combination of the word, you know, geography and strategy. Uh, I think a lot of companies in the sector in transportation cannot explain themselves because again the language is is missing um it's why i i love alan's newsletter so much because the you know the classes of vehicles you know safe driving self-driving and driverless it, it, it's so clear and yet these startups every startup even if they, if they just build a lane keeping system are referred to as self-driving so geotegic consulting specializes in transportation messaging storytelling a little bit of branding, and maybe some strategy. Sounds terrific. Uh, speaking of Alan's newsletter, we've got some stories in, in the latest edition of Smart Driving Car to get to. Alan, uh, let's talk first about uh, what's going on at Tesla. Uh, while it reportedly has met its Model 3 production goal for the latest quarter with room to spare, Elon Musk is fighting for his professional future in a battle with the SEC, which has accused him of violating market manipulation laws. Well, you know, it's 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 kind of sad because uh, you know he, he he probably has in some sense, but you know everybody knows knows it's Elon doing the talking. So you know, one one looks at the, at the, at a certain part of the substance, but realizes that maybe the dates and the numbers are a little bit uh, puffied up and so on. So um, 
uh, everybody knows how to understand it and, and to try to pick up the vision of what he's trying to do, not necessarily all the details. And it's kind of a shame that all this is on. And I guess I make some sort of comment. Maybe the SEC should should uh, should uh, go after itself for now. Uh, you know, drop uh, having the, the the stock price of Tesla drop so as to let the sh- uh, the guys who were shorting it uh, basically cover their shorts. I I don't know. Whatever. Um, it's kind of a shame. Uh, but, you know, within the transportation in the industry, uh, we know very well that using the bankruptcy court to kind of clean up some debt is uh, is uh, something that, uh, that uh, the railroads have done, the airlines have done, the car companies have done, and uh, maybe Elon will have to end up doing. I don't know. So but um, that should not necessarily be a, a, a strike against him. The fact that they made their production goals apparently for the last quarter is, is to me very impressive because if you look at the sales of, of EVs in the U.S. Uh, right now, um, a, a one out of every two EVs sold is a Model 3. So that's an enormous accomplishment. Um, uh, now, whether it's been done profitably or not profitably, who knows? But it is an enormous amount of accomplishment to capture 50% market share of a particular product. And, 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 and it looks like it's an excellent product. Uh, I have a lot of complaints about the NHTSA ratings, uh, safety ratings, but my goodness, the Model 3 is, is coming out to be to be a perfect scorer in all of those. And, and for good reason, you know, you don't have a, an engine block in, the, in, in front of you to come through the firewall and chop your legs off if, if you crash. And so you have the whole front of the car as a shock absorber and you, and you have the battery as the floor of the car, therefore the, the center of gravity of that thing's gonna be low. So it's probably almost impossible to flip you know, as opposed to, I don't know, a Jeep or something, um, or I don't know where they are with Jeeps these days, but or Ford, Ford Broncos were, I don't know, I always thought that center of gravity was like 10 feet hot, but who knows, I'm, I'm exaggerating, sorry, I don't mean, um, but whatever, and and so that's in there, and and, uh, and of course, the other one is that the uh, is that uh, they're coming out with the next generation of, of autopilot in a sense, but I think um, if they don't make it clear, they do call it self-driving, and it is self-driving. It requires adult supervision, and everybody who gets that and pays the $8,000 for that and the extra $5,000 for the Corinthian leather, and be sure to click on the Corinthian leather to see the <laughs> Ricardo Montalban. And you have a link to that Chrysler ad from 1975. I know my own needs. And what I need from an automobile, I know I get from this new Cordova. I could ask for nothing beyond the quality of Cordova's workmanship, the tastefulness of its appearance. I request nothing beyond the thickly cushioned luxury of seats available even in soft Corinthian leather. And, uh, hey, if you want to put a good smile on your face, you watch that one. And, and anyway... But, but uh, so I, I think if I look at it, the, the news is really good out of Tesla, but, but uh, 
but it's it's broadly distributed and and there is some probability that it could be really bad. Well, let, let's get to the to the to the heart of this. What how much of a loss do you think it would be if the SEC is successful here in its suit and bans Musk from being able to run any public company? Oh, well, I mean that's that's uh, come on. I mean, really? I mean, <laughs> Take away some guy's livelihood, and uh, not that he needs it, but but I mean. Well, there there are many there I are many who see him as not only a visionary with Tesla, but uh, basic. What he said wasn't that egregious, you know. Uh, just because you know he might have overstated that he had a deal for whatever four hundred and twenty. Um, everybody everybody knew that he probably didn't, and and uh, and that the number was whatever. But anyway. Alex, you want to chime in on this? Uh, I, I'm I'm uh, amazed that uh, Alan is giving Elon a pass on this. Oh. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, I, you know, I'm 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 a Tesla. I'm a fan of the cars and the ambition. Um, not so much the uh, overstatement of capabilities. Um, but yeah, I think that was a pretty bad tweet and. I think Tesla would be much better off with Elon in a ceremonial role or a number two spot. Uh, I, I don't see anything that they couldn't do better with someone with real operational and manufacturing experience in place. I'm rooting for them because I like an underdog. Uh, I, I don't own any stock and I always stress that because almost everybody who has an opinion on Tesla has an agenda. Um, so I don't. Yeah, I, I don't own any stock, and and, and I I said, geez, I, if I would short anybody, I'd short them. But I don't have I I don't have the I I, I don't like I don't I'm not that risk taker. So uh, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. One of my colleagues is very rich. He uses as his investment. Uh, uh, advice. He does the inverse Kornhauser, <laughs> and the inverse Kornhauser very well for a lot of people. So, so you don't. Want... <laughs> Alan, in in the latest newsletter, you highlight some videos posted on Reddit from the first international Tesla hacking conference in Paris. Videos show uh, the streets as as Tesla autopilot sees them, and I guess that's the existing edition, not the new autopilot coming. Out. Yeah, and and I, the reason I put those in there is is really to show uh, I think uh, displace the the quality of their image real time image processing, and if you look at those, you see that that in fact um, uh, they do they do the recognition, they do the tagging, they do the uh, the assignment. Uh, that system has the cognition of what it is in in the world around it. And the, the fact that people say it needs LIDAR, I mean, um, uh, uh, I don't think it does. And, but, of course, I'm a vision bigot, as I say. I, you know, I think that this thing can be done with vision. And certainly in the 2025 time frame, uh, given that Moore's, I don't see any slowing down in Moore's law, uh, that the improvement in, in, in image processing, AI, deep learning, uh, 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 memory, uh, computation speed, my goodness, the, the, the processing of the images and so on to, to get the information uh, that one needs so that one doesn't crash um, will readily be there in the vision space um, supported with radar, and, and I don't think you need LIDAR. 
And I think LIDAR just adds, um, doesn't really add anything. But, um, well, I have a question, for, uh, my friends. What about, uh, like, thermal, like, you know, cameras, like uh, FLIR or Seek Thermal type type cameras? Because I, I'm, surpri- I'm surprised to hear you say you don't believe in LIDAR. Um, uh, but I do believe that with or without LIDAR, that another sensor probably makes sense. Yeah. And, it's, and uh, you know, thermal is much cheaper than LIDAR. Yeah, no, I, I think that uh, I think that, that being able to look uh, more broadly in, in, the, in the spectrum with respect to certainly having um, uh, some of the uh, some of that is, is, is helps. It certainly helps with with, uh, with the animals. And with the, the deer hits and being able to see that, and also a little bit with the pedestrians. Uh, but I think also with with uh, reasonable headlights, uh, which we have, and and with uh, with those lighting conditions, I think it's good. And I'm not a fan of having these cars uh, drive in, in 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 fog and heavy snow. In fog and heavy snow, everybody needs to stop because it's it's. It's certainly not going to be in my lifetime that there will be so few human-driven vehicles out there that that these these things will dominate. And since there there are human-driven vehicles out there, uh, humans shouldn't be driving in fog and, and heavy snow, and and neither should these things because uh, because they're going to hit the, the the human cars that are out there. So so. I don't think that that's the problem we're trying to solve with this. I think the the problem we're we're trying to solve with all this intelligence and and all this AI and, and automation is is what we started talking about is providing mobility uh, to those who who uh, don't have the opportunity or, or for good or bad reason uh, to be behind the wheel of their own. From vehicle. the consumer perspective, I've always I've. Looked at it from from that standpoint, and I think most people would say, well, if the technology, whatever technology there there is, uh, whether it's LIDAR, uh, the thermal cameras, uh, regular cameras, why can't it all be put in there if it could be made affordable enough, which in scale, uh, I suppose it could. Why not use everything available to make these vehicles as safe as possible? Well, of course. Uh, I mean, yeah, it, but, but you have it if, if inexpensive enough. And then what, what happens is as, as you layer one on top of the other on top of the other, it's not just the sensors uh, that cause, that cause the, the challenge. It's now integrating all of that information. And, and, and the part of the, part of the issue is you say, well, I want some redundancy. If, if, if one thing tells you A and the other thing tells you B, you don't know which one is right. Period. Only God, only she knows. And she's not talking. So, you know, in some sense, having a bunch of things out there that, that don't all absolutely agree doesn't really help you. And, and, and it's, it's, it does, and when you look at it, it's not even, let's do democracy. Let's see, let's see. Well, if, if one, if it's 11 to 10, then it moves to the Senate. Well, who knows? I mean, as we're seeing here, we don't know. Are they, are the 11 right or the 10 right? We don't know. Uh, God knows. She knows. 
but she's not talking. Well, there's another company we want to talk about briefly <laughs> as, as well. I know. <laughs> Toyota, Alan. Uh, there's a the Bloomberg Business Week piece on on the company, the, the biggest automaker, and how it has not been a leader in this race to create driverless cars. What's your take on that? Well, you know, they've been playing. They're not leading. You know, they they got hit really hard with the uh, unintended acceleration piece uh, with with Prius. You know, uh, what was that? Maybe getting to be 10 years ago or whatever. I mean, you, you could... I'm sure that within that corporation, they're still they're still hurting from that, and and um, and so there that I think has put an enormous amount of caution in, in, into that company. Um, uh, but uh, in the end, um, you know, if you if you believe Adam Jonas or you listen to that, um, <laughs> um, they're going to get blockbusters. There's a lot, there are a lot more stories in the newsletter that uh, we don't have time to get into, but under Command Man, there's a story from This Is Money talking about a system being worked on at Carnegie Mellon University to replace conventional traffic lights with virtual appearing on dashboards or windshields. And as Alan would like to say, come on, man. <laughs> come on. Whatever. I... <laughs> That that assumes that we transform the world from having uh, no automation, none of these things, to everything being there. You know, what are you going to do? Leave everybody else behind that, that that doesn't have the gizmo in their car? And really, uh, um, if if the car is that smart, why does it? Why is it telling me what the traffic light is? It, it should know it, and it should it should deal with it and leave me alone and and uh, deal with the things that I. Uh, come on, man! I don't know. I don't even know. As I said, uh, if it got it, it, it deserves a C. A nice um, um, uh, lady, gentleman seat. Well, Alex, uh, we really appreciate you spending time with us. Uh, and you probably have a dozen places you could list here, but where's where do you want to steer listeners to go to, to follow you? Uh, I recommend uh, Alex Roy 144 on Twitter is the best place. Terrific. And you can find us at smartdrivingcar.com on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spreaker, even your Amazon Alexa. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, you with the rhinestone dog collar. Between us dogs, I just convinced my human to upgrade to a new home with a 1,200-square-foot bathroom. I think she called it a yard. With Wells Fargo's 3% down payment on a fixed-rate loan, my human realized a new home was within reach. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash woof. Wells Fargo Home Mortgage. Down payments as low as 3% on a fixed-rate loan require mortgage insurance. Ask a home mortgage consultant about loan requirements. Wells Fargo Home Mortgage is a division of Wells Fargo Bank N.A. Equal housing lender. NMLSR ID 399801.